I will not die later than I should simply for the senseless reason that a highly skilled technological physician does not understand who I am, writes Dr. Sherwin Newland. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Sherwin Newland. Dr. Newland is a clinical professor of surgery at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut and the author of numerous books, including How We Die, Reflections on Life's Final Chapter, which won the National Book Award, and The Art of Aging, A Doctor's Prescription for Well-Being. Dr. Newland, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, what a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Newland, do you believe people die the way they live? <laughs> That's such a very difficult question. We would like to think so. Unfortunately, disease makes up its own mind, and we are victimized by disease that causes sometimes such great suffering that we die without any element of the dignity with which we have tried to live our lives. What is your definition of a good death? I think a definition of a good death has to do with a number of factors. Obviously, it has to do with good palliative care so that there's minimal discomfort. I think it has to do with having made that voyage, that final voyage with people whom we love, who are able to express to us what our lives have meant to them. I think it consists of also being in the hands of physicians who understand that there is a limit beyond which diagnostic and therapeutic maneuvers should not go because obviously of the diminishment of any returns that might come out of such maneuvers. What led you to write your book, How We Die? Well, in actual fact, the book was suggested to me by a literary agent whom I had never met. I had written some things for The New Yorker and elsewhere, and he had the idea that the general public, this is back in 92, knows far less about what happens when we die than perhaps it ought to. So he contacted me and he said, would you be willing to write such a book? And at first I was very, very reluctant, but I took a year off from practice. Actually, never spoke to him during that year and wrote this book during that time. The book was published in the early 1990s. If you wrote a sequel today, what would it include? Well, I think things have changed. I think that this enormous push by physicians, especially acute care physicians, especially younger physicians, to continue therapy beyond all sense has softened somewhat. As a matter of fact, some of my younger colleagues who work in intensive care tell me that in certain situations uh, the reverse is true, that it's the family that demands certain kinds of care that really are not helpful to the patient, are very damaging to the patient. But I think the medical world has had its eyes widened and certainly opened to the realization that in the past we have tried too hard to solve this riddle of defeating death. You write in your book, and I'm going to quote you, when I have a major illness requiring highly specialized treatment, I will seek out a doctor skilled in its provision, but I will not expect of him that he understand my values, my expectations for myself and those I love, my spiritual nature, or my philosophy of life. This is not what he is trained for, and that is not what he will be good at. For those reasons, I will not allow a specialist to decide when to let go. 
I will not die later than I should simply for the senseless reason that a highly skilled technological physician does not understand who I am. What do you tell your medical students in this regard? I tell my medical students a number of things. One of them is that they should be aware of these facts. They should be aware of the realization that no matter how well we get to see our patients and know our patients, even over a long period of time, there are certain moral values they have, spiritual values they have, that we will somehow never come to understand. That what is required around the time of death is, of course, the best of medical help, the greatest empathy from physicians that is possible, but also the physician's realization that it's family members, that it's members of the clergy who've had a long-term relationship with the patient, and it's the patient herself or himself who's best qualified to make these kinds of decisions. And, and it's been gratifying to me that the notion of autonomy has grown so much that the bioethicists have been largely responsible for this, but I think in general the public has been responsible too for the recognition of how important autonomy is for individual patients. What do you think dying will look like in 20 years? <laughs> what, a, what a difficult question. In the first place, it's perfectly clear that palliative care is being understood much better every year. I think that it will not be like it is today in the sense that there'll be far less pressure in intensive care units, far more attempt to relieve symptoms, and a greater recognition of decision-making, which is largely in the hands of patients and family than we see today. Dr. Newland, how has the curriculum changed in terms of end-of-life care for medical students? Oh, it's changed dramatically in the, what is it now, 12 years since the book has come out. There's been the influence of the bioethicists. There's been the influence of the physicians themselves who've come to realize the importance of what end-of-life care really is. And I think there's been an increased demand by students who don't come to medical school knowing nothing. They come to medical school having read about these issues and demanding, I think, more training, uh, more bedside help with what I call the pastoral role of the physician, the physician at the bedside as another human being. Are there certain themes that continue to appear in the bioethics classes that you teach? Well, of course, the most important theme in bioethics classes has been, from the beginning, end-of-life issues. We clearly discuss stem cell issues. We like to think that's going to be less of a problem with the recent news. But I think that major influence on courses in bioethics, both at the request of the students themselves and of the faculty are the ways in which a highly technologically trained physician can relate as a human being, as a kind of medical counselor to the people for whose lives he is responsible. And what do you say about that? How do students learn how to do that? Well, students ideally learn how to do anything through emulating their senior faculty, and as their senior faculty becomes more aware of the problems, more insightful themselves about the problems, they're in a far better position to be of help to younger people. And also, we now have bioethicists on the faculty. We now have people, as a matter of fact, in some schools steeped in, in philosophy, in divinity, to help us with these kinds of problems. 
tell us your thoughts about hospice. Well, I became involved in the hospice movement, let's see, it was in the late 1970s, and it has been a glorious ride for me. I learned more in my first six months involved with hospice care about taking care of dying people than I had learned in my entire medical training and experience up to that time. Hospice works at the most fundamental and basic level. Dedicated volunteers, dedicated professionals, a dedicated concept to make not just death easier for the patient, but for the entire family with, of course, the continuation of watching out for that family after death has come to the person that they love. How do you respond to your colleagues and others who say, isn't that work so depressing? Oh, I don't often hear people say it's depressing. I more often I'm likely to hear people say it's among the most rewarding kinds of work that they have done in their entire lives because it makes them feel as if they've made a real contribution to a patient and a family, but it brings back what I called a moment ago the pastoral role of the physician, the role of the physician as the true healer, the true caretaker. So I find that physicians involved with hospice and physicians who have become part of the palliative care movements in general discover that their work is not only rewarding but enormously important to the patient, to the family, and to the profession itself. What's your best advice regarding advanced directives? (laughs) That's an easy one. Everybody should have them and everybody should have them very clearly, but the important thing is not so much having them and having a piece of paper on which they're written. The important thing is to discuss them with family members. I'm living in my own family right now with a relative whose needs and wishes are very clearly spelt out in the document, but they're not being followed because there was never any clear discussion with family members about what those advanced directives meant. So we're now living with a situation where a woman has gone well beyond where her advanced directives would have recommended that further treatment be stopped, and yet treatment continues because nobody can bear himself or herself to stop that treatment. Dr. Newland, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your book, How We Die, Reflections on Life's Final Chapter, which won the National Book Award. Pleasure. Thank you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.